This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. I had a professor once who said, I decided that I always wanted to be original. And then I discovered that to be original in Christian theology means to become heretical. If God does not tell us, then we don't need to know. We shouldn't know. And so we we go with what God has given. What are the Ten Commandments? What are my neighbor's needs? When you realize that in the sight of God, your sins are gone and you are set free from them, that changes you from the inside out and makes you want to do the very will of God. The gospel is enough natural motivation to love the Jewish people and to look at them as that older brother who remain outside the party like in the prodigal son and to identify with the father who staying outside and pleading with them to come in. Babies? Babies! Love? Love! Listening? Ning. Two. Two. Issues. Issues. Etc. Shredda. With. With. Their. Dear. Mommies. Mommies. How did the Roe v. Wade decision almost 50 years ago change American law? And what changed in American law in those nearly 50 years to make Rose demise possible and perhaps even inevitable. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Live on this Tuesday afternoon, November the 7th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Joining us to track the history of Roe v. Wade's failure, Clark Forsyth. He's senior counsel at Americans United for Life and co-author of the new book, Pushing Roe v. Wade Over the Brink. Clark, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Good to be back with you. For some context, if you would talk about the two bioethical debates regarding abortion and euthanasia. Well, both issues went into the courts over the last uh, 30, 40 years. Abortion first with Roe versus Wade. But then after uh, the Supreme Court declared a constitutional right to abortion in Roe versus Wade, suicide and euthanasia advocates thought they could get a Roe versus Wade euthanasia or assisted suicide. And they went into the courts in the 1990s and sought to get the Supreme Court to declare a national right to assisted suicide following Roe versus Wade. And I think because of the backlash against Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to leave assisted suicide to the states and refused to declare a national right, and it's been a state issue ever since. And I think that that decision against assisted suicide came back in the Dobbs decision of June 2024, because if you read the Dobbs decision, it sounds like the assisted suicide decisions that left the issues to the state. So it was a great outcome on both issues eventually. Who was pushing for the legalization of abortion 
in the 1950s and 60s? Well, it started with doctors and I would say elites, academics, professors, but then in the 50s and 60s, doctors began to push for legalization. And then there were social activists. But doctors, I think, led the way. And ironically, it was only late in the 1960s that feminist organizations pushed for abortion. You may remember Betty Friedan's book, The Feminist Mystique. She never argued for a right to abortion in the feminist mystique. And only as late as, I think, 1968, then, the National Organization for Women split over the abortion issue and calling for its legalization. What Supreme Court cases laid the foundation for Roe? Two, primarily. The first was Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. That declared a right to artificial contraception for married couples based, the rationale was the right to marital privacy. But then in 1972, the Supreme Court, which was shorthanded at the time with a narrow 4-3 majority, extended Griswold and said that artificial contraception is a right for any single individual, basically of any age. And although neither of those decisions created a right to terminate pregnancy, as the Supreme Court defined abortion, the court used those two cases as a kind of linchpin to create the right to abortion in Roe versus Wade. They pointed to those two, but there were scholars and judges at the time that said Griswold and Eisenstadt versus Baird in 1972, they don't establish a right to terminate pregnancy. They don't lead to a right to abortion, but yet the court relied upon them in Roe versus Wade. How was the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People a model for the pro-life movement? Well, the NAACP uh, started to get into the courts in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, and they started to challenge Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the 1896 decision by the Supreme Court, which cited eight to one that racial segregation was the law. They, they, the court invented the separate but equal doctrine that public entities, public governments, local governments could segregate on the basis of race. And the NAACP went into the courts to challenge Plessy versus Ferguson. And um, I think they, they were an inspiration to American United for Life because they were tenacious, they were courageous, they realized that to challenge Plessy versus Ferguson, they had to understand how the Supreme Court works, how the law is changed, what kind of evidence they would need. And their courage and tenaciousness, their perseverance over decades in the face of considerable opposition, were, were all of that was an inspiration to American Jedi for Life. So how did Roe, the decision made by the Roe court, how did that change American law? Well, the court declared that an amorphous constitutional right to privacy encompassed abortion. And that was kind of the extent of the reasoning. The court had recognized a right to privacy, and the court simply said that 
we believe that abortion or the, or the right to privacy is broad enough to encompass abortion. You can tell the lack of reasoning about that. They simply, dic- they simply dictated it. They simply declared it. And that, after Roe, that right of privacy threatened to encompass any bioethical issue, a right to a suicide, a right to euthanasia, a right to in vitro fertilization, a right to uh, reproductive technology. That didn't happen, but in the 70s after Roe, it, it threatened to encompass all of those issues. It also suppressed public opinion and what the public could do through the states. The court became the National Abortion Control Board and decided from coast to coast in every state and every local government the kind of regulations on abortions that were permissible. So the the court dictated the issue from Washington, and the court controlled every abortion clinic and every abortion regulation in all 50 states. What did Roe actually permit by way of abortion? Did it permit abortion on demand for all nine months for any or no reason? It did, and that's because there were two decisions. There was Roe versus Wade, which declared a right to abortion up to fetal viability, which in 1973 they estimated was 28 weeks of pregnancy. But then there was a second decision called Doe versus Bolton. And Doe versus Bolton said that even after viability, even after fetal viability, there was a right to abortion for any health reason defined as any emotional reason and that the states had to give virtually absolute discretion to abortion providers, male doctors at the time, to abortion providers to decide what's a health abortion or whether emotional trauma was at stake to justify the woman's abortion. And uh, those two together declared a right to abortion for virtually any reason, including emotional trauma, all the way up to birth. What kind of legal challenges were mounted against on the periphery of Roe after the ruling was made? Well, the decision in Roe versus Wade was vague, amorphous. It wasn't clear what the court would allow in terms of limits or regulations. And so immediately afterwards, in addition to introducing constitutional amendments in Congress, the states started to try to pass marginal regulations, such as parental notice or consent laws, or clinic regulations, health and safety regulations, or informed consent laws that would require that women get a substantial amount of information about abortion, its nature, risks, and implications, and many other types of health and safety regulations. And that created test cases in the courts that transpired in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and beyond. And the states were always trying to figure out what limits the court would permit. And the court started basically to strike down all these laws or virtually all these laws and permit very few regulations. And that itself spurred justices to criticize the court for not allowing the states to have more leeway to protect health and safety. 
Talk about the attempt to limit funding for abortion. Well, that was a big issue from the very beginning, too, because if there was a right to abortion, then could Congress prevent taxpayer funding for going to abort to fund abortion at the federal level or at the state level? And that could mean a couple of things, not only direct tax dollars, but also whether public entities, because they are public, were required to permit abortion, such as public hospitals. Public hospitals were an immediate issue. Could the city of St. Louis prevent abortions from being done in its public hospitals? Could Congress prevent abortion from being performed in in federally subsidized hospitals? And those cases went through the courts throughout the 1970s. Some courts said that uh, Congress could do nothing, the states could do nothing to prevent abortion and had to include abortions in public facilities. But finally, in 1980, the uh, Supreme Court, by a six to three decision, said that the Hyde Amendment, which prohibited funding for any abortion except to save the life of the mother, the Hyde Amendment was constitutional and that state versions of the Hyde Amendment were also constitutional. And that pretty much settled the issue of public funding until the Dobbs decision. We're getting a history of Roe v. Wade's failure. Clark Forsyth is our guest, senior counsel at Americans United for Life and co-author of the new book, Pushing Roe v. Wade Over the Brink. On the other side, how would he describe the Supreme Court's abortion doctrine after the Roe decision? Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Defending life from beginning to end. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life 
well lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Faithful Christians are facing enormous challenges and uncertainties. Where are we to find our strength? Join us at St. John Lutheran in Sycamore, Illinois, as Pastor Adam Kuntz presents on the theme, Strong Under Pressure, the Church's Life in Paul's First Letter to Timothy. This conference is on Saturday, November 18th. Go to ChristianFaithAndLife.com for more information and to register. That's ChristianFaithAndLife.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're getting a history of Roe v. Wade's failure with Clark Forsyth, co-author of the new book, Pushing Roe v. Wade Over the Brink. Clark, how would you describe the Supreme Court's abortion doctrine after the Roe decision? It was very broad. It was virtually unlimited. It was completely at the discretion of the justices. And it was sweeping in its implications. The court in Roe kind of made some vague suggestions that they would permit the state to have discretion to enact limits on abortion. But then after the court declared a right to abortion and then started to look at specific regulations, the court mostly struck them down and said, you have to give discretion of virtually unlimited discretion to abortion providers. So the court deferred to abortion providers and exercised hostility against congressional or state regulation. And that continued year after year until the court in Dobbs overturned Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. What was the significance of Thornburg v. ACOG? What was that case? That was decided in 1986. I started with American United for Life in 1985, and that case was heading to the Supreme Court about the very time I started. So it was one of the first cases I dealt with at American United for Life and that we were briefing. And it was from Pennsylvania. It dealt with the Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act. It had a number of different regulations And it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court struck down the Pennsylvania law five to four. It was disappointing that the court struck down the Pennsylvania statute and informed consent laws. It struck down virtually everything in the Pennsylvania Act. But what was encouraging, the encouraging part of Thornburg, was that there were four strong dissenters. And so... Roe versus Wade was decided seven to two. The Hyde Amendment was upheld six to three. But there were four strong dissenters against Roe advocating that Roe be overturned back in 86. 
And that was an encouragement to us that the dissenters were staying on the court, the dissenters were leveling strong criticisms, and that encouraged us to continue our strategy in the states and in the courts. Were there any other indications that the Supreme Court was willing to question, even question in a minor way, the Roe decision? Well, the dissenters in Thornburg were strong critics. Three years later, in Webster versus Reproductive Health Services out of Missouri, there were four strong dissenters. And three years later, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, there were also four strong dissenters who, as late as 1992, urged the court to get out of the abortion umpiring business, as Justice Scalia called it, and to overturn Roe and completely return the issue to the states. Unfortunately, the court continued to be the abortion control board for another 30 years until 2022. But even Casey encouraged us to continue to work in the states and in the courts and to persevere because the criticism was continuing from justices, from lower court judges, and from academics and from the public. What was Casey all about? Casey was another law from Pennsylvania, and it had a number of different provisions, a number of different limits, including parental consent and informed consent, requiring women get full information about the nature risks and alternatives to abortion. And the court, again, struck down virtually all those laws, five to four, and the justices in the five started to leave the court. So the court then had some turnover. But the four strong dissents in Casey, uh, as I mentioned, were encouraging to us, even after, you know, 20 years of Roe versus Wade, there were still four justices who felt the court was grievously wrong and should have returned the issue to the states. And that was encouraging. How was the system of federalism, how has it been key in the eventual overturn of Roe v. Wade? Well, the federalist structure that we have our Constitution means that we have one federal government, but we have the states, and the states have general legislative authority. And over the course of 200 years, the number of states has grown from uh, 13 states to 50 states. And the states can experiment with legislation and try different public policies when Congress is not sympathetic. And the court acknowledged in Roe versus Wade that the states had some authority to pass, for example, health and safety regulations. And so even when there is a hostile president or a hostile Congress or a hostile court, the states can continue to legislate to protect life. Compare parliamentary systems. We have a federalist system, but if you look at, say, Canada, or you look at Great Britain with parliamentary systems, they don't have a federal structure. If you went into parliament and tried to get pro-life legislation, it could easily be rejected, and there would be no recourse to go to state governments. William Wilberforce, back in the 1780s, was working through Parliament to prohibit the slave trade, and his strategy was stymied by the fact that he would go into Parliament, but if a parliamentary committee rejected his 
proposal to abolish the slave trade, he had no recourse to go to the states. So when it came to abortion, the states were engines for protecting life and creating test cases in the courts that resulted in the Thornburg case and the Webster case and the Casey case, and eventually in the Dobbs decision in 2022. Federalism is just a source of freedom. It preserves freedom in this country. It preserves the ability of the people to voice their convictions at the local and state level. And as you know, we've all lived through uh, the pandemic and the states were able to take different approaches to the COVID pandemic than the federal government took toward the pandemic. States were able to free to adopt different health policies, different employment policies, different uh, public health policies. So federalism is a source of freedom in this country. How are assisted suicide and euthanasia related to abortion? Well, the Roe decision and the creation of an amorphous, broad right to privacy threatened to envelop assisted suicide or euthanasia and create a national right to assisted suicide or euthanasia that would prevent the states from limiting it. But thankfully, in 1997, the court said, no, we're not going to create a right to assisted suicide or euthanasia, and we're going to leave that issue to the states. And since 1997, 10 or 11 states have created a right to assisted suicide, but that is much better than having a sweeping right across all 50 states that ignored public opinion in the states to protect life and to protect patients from assisted suicide or euthanasia. So once again, the federalist structure has enabled us to hold the line against the legalization of euthanasia or assisted suicide. Clark Forsyth is our guest. We're talking a history of Roe v. Wade's failure, and we'll discuss how Roe sparked a series of freedom of speech and conscience measures next. The church's music from the second century. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love The sixth century. The twelfth century. The 16th century. The 21st century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, 
the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth, you're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're getting a history of Roe v. Wade's failure with Clark Forsyth. He's senior counsel for Americans United for Life and co-author of the new book, Pushing Roe v. Wade Over the Brink. Lutherans for Life will be hosting several activities surrounding the 2024 National March for Life, January 19th in Washington, D.C. Learn more at lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Clark, talk about how Roe sparked a series of freedom of speech and conscience measures. The court declared in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton this national right. This they called it a fundamental right to abortion, almost on par with free speech that's actually in the text of the First Amendment. So it was a huge cultural moment. The Supreme Court of the United States, which still had the respect that it had garnered through Brown versus Board of Education and striking down separate but equal, striking down racial segregation in public, the court still had considerable public credentials and public respect. And so when it declared a national right to abortion, that had a huge political impact and a huge cultural impact. And it basically preached to the public that Abortion was precious. Abortion was fundamental and that uh, everyone had to respect it. And that only through public opposition and perseverance through the states did that respect for Roe eventually be undermined. You say that Roe and Casey contained the seeds of their own destruction. What do you mean? Well, in one of my books, Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe versus Wade, which was published in 2013, I look at how the justices came to 
deliberate behind the scenes to create Roe versus Wade, to create the viability rule, to declare that doctors, abortion providers had discretion to do any abortion at any time for any health or emotional reason. And the deliberations in Roe, the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, had no trials. There was no evidentiary record. There was no use of the adversarial process to argue for or against a right to abortion or to examine the Anglo-American history that protected life. And so the justices basically made up Roe and its framework behind the scenes and without the usual function of the legal system and the litigation system that we have. So they had very little evidence for determining the risks of abortion or determining the need for health and safety regulations. And all of those problems continued to fester because it made it difficult for the court to justify what it did and the sweeping nature of what it did. And that provided the seeds for dissenting justices to continually persist in criticizing what the court had done. What measures did the Clinton administration push regarding abortion? Well, they pushed for unlimited abortion. They pushed for a federal statute of unlimited abortion. They pushed to eliminate all the state regulations. They promoted the so-called Freedom of Choice Act, FOCA, the FOCA law, that would eliminate all that the states were doing to limit abortion funding, to require parental notice or consent, to require informed consent. And they immediately upon taking office on uh, the first day of the Clinton administration, the uh, administration pushed and started an initiative to bring chemical abortion from France, where it had been created, to the United States. And it's been well documented uh, by a congressional committee and by researchers, recently expressed in a, a federal court opinion that's going up to the Supreme Court right now out of Texas. It was recognized that the Clinton administration cut all kinds of loopholes, including proper health and safety data, to bring chemical abortion, which at that in the 1990s was called RU-486 by the French, bring chemical abortion to the United States as fast as possible and as deregulated as possible. And once it was approved by the Clinton administration on the eve of the 2000 election in September of 2000, the Obama administration and the Biden administration worked year after year to deregulate chemical abortion and eventually to push it over the counter. And that's where we are today. And a case challenging that deregulation is heading to the Supreme Court right now. Tell us a little bit about that case, if you would. Well, it doesn't involve a constitutional right to abortion. It doesn't involve the Dobbs decision saying the abortion issue is sent back to the states. It involves the proper legal authority of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. The FDA approved chemical abortion for the American medical market in 2000. And since then, has administration by administration has diluted the regulations. It has, for example, 
failed to collect data about the complications of chemical abortion and report it to the public. And the challenge to the FDA's authority, which was filed in the Texas federal court a couple of years ago, challenges both the FDA's approval as unlawful and contrary to health and safety data, medical data, challenged the approval in 2000, and each attempt to deregulate since 2000. And so all of those legal issues and the authority of the FDA are going to be appealed to the Supreme Court imminently. What changed that led to the real possibility of overturning Roe? Well, it required both the criticism from justices, the criticism from lower court judges, the uh, academic law professor criticism, the criticism and resistance by the public and the states. But ultimately, it required a change in the justices and a change in the personnel of the court. And there had to be sufficient changes administration by administration until there was a majority that was skeptical of Roe versus Wade. And on the eve in in, in the 2016 presidential election, when it was Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, in the middle of 2016, it was the polling suggests that Hillary Clinton would be elected president. And as, as we all know, there was a big surprise on election night 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. And because of the age of the justices, he had the opportunity to replace three justices with Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett, who then addressed the Dobbs case in 2021, at which time the state of Mississippi once again urged the court to completely throw out Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And there were five justices to do it, and they did it in the Dobbs decision in June 2022, finally, after virtually 50 years. Clark Forsyth is our guest. We're getting a history of Roe v. Wade's failure. On the other side, how and why was Roe overturned? This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. 
The Christian religion is not like a buffet line, a modern smorgasbord of beliefs offering a wide range of tempting choices. Rather, it is the good deposit handed down to us in the scriptures through the history of the church that we might believe and confess who Jesus Christ is. To learn more about pick and choose religion, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. To subscribe, visit cph.org witness or learn more at our website witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Did you know that we send out an email each week that details upcoming show topics? It's available for you to include in your weekly church bulletin. Just click the Issues Etc. Journal logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, and sign up to receive the church bulletin blurb. It's an easy way to invite your fellow parishioners to listen to Issues Etc. Issuesetc.org. Look for the Issues Etc. Journal logo and register to receive a weekly bulletin paragraph from Issues Etc. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Clark Forsyth. He's giving us a history of Roe v. Wade's failure. Clark, you talked about the changes on the Supreme Court. How and why ultimately was Roe overturned? Well, it was due to the persistence of teams of lawyers over those years, continued criticism, and because of a change in the court but also because the state of Mississippi, and and actually a majority of states, I think a total of 25 or 26 states, joined together to support Mississippi in urging the court to return the issue to the states. And then they challenged those states, and the state of Mississippi principally, challenged the underpinnings of Roe versus Wade. The court in Roe versus Wade gave us 50 years of a false history. They told the nation that We had no Anglo-American medical tradition, no Anglo-American legal tradition of protecting the unborn child, the developing human being from the earliest stages. And one of the things that has not been sufficiently recognized about the Dobbs decision is the Dobbs decision and the Supreme Court in Dobbs gave our nation back its legal and cultural heritage that going back centuries Our medical tradition, our legal tradition has sought to protect the prenatal human being, the developing human being from the earliest stages of human development. And the court has now given that cultural and legal heritage back to our nation, wiping out that false history that Roe versus Wade gave us, and also challenging the notion that 
Supreme Court precedent supported Roe versus Wade. The court swept that aside, too. And the court said that because, well, for many reasons, said that that the doctrine of precedent required Roe versus Wade to be reconsidered because it was unsettled and because of that false history and because it was not protected or justified by precedent. All those reasons are voiced in the court's opinion in Dobbs, and it was a wonderful victory after virtually 50 years. What's changed since Dobbs? Well, the court has sent the issue back from the court to public sentiment. The abortion issue has moved from the Supreme Court to public sentiment. If you read the Dobbs decision, the court, in more than a dozen strong passages, basically said we are sending the abortion issue back to the people and their elected representatives. Congress may have a say, but principally the court was sending it back to the states. And I believe it will be a state issue for decades to come permanently. And I believe that the court was saying that it is back to the state. So we have to be concerned about shaping public sentiment for the long term, shaping culture, passing protective legislation at the states, advancing the proliferation of pregnancy resource centers in every state and every locale across the country so that every woman has an opportunity to seek alternatives to abortion and has support during pregnancy and after pregnancy with childcare. There's a lot to do. What can be done in the States? You and I both live in Illinois. What can be done? Well, Illinois has become one of the most tenacious blue states and hostile to pro-life and hostile to limits on abortion because of who's elected governor and who's elected to the state Senate and the state House. So pro-life Americans need to be wise and vigilant voters and need to be involved at the local level, at the county level, at the state legislative level, voting for the right governors who will protect life and the right members of the House and the Senate and concerned about who is now on their state Supreme Court, because state courts, as some have, could create a state version of Roe versus Wade and declare a a state constitutional right to abortion. We have to be supporting pregnancy resource centers, as many as possible across our states. We need to be involved in local institutions, uh, local organizations that are promoting life at the state and local level. All of this needs to be undertaken to shape culture and politics and over the long haul, shape public sentiment to create a deeply based public opinion that is protective of life and of equal human dignity. What are the bioethical challenges of the 21st century? Well, there are a lot and they are proliferating and they can be addressed by the states, I think, first and foremost but also by Congress. I think, for example, a a major issue that we have to confront is sufficient informed consent for elective medical procedures. You can imagine that, for example, with uh, heart disease, that's a uh, medically indicated problem that doctors need to address. But through the internet, through 
through uh, entrepreneurial activity with biotech companies. All kinds of elective procedures are being thrown at us and marketed to us. Physical and mental and sexual enhancement devices and drugs are being marketed to us, circumventing the doctor-patient relationship, but through many different marketing mechanisms. And when it comes to elective procedures that don't address disease or illness, but they're meant to enhance our physical or mental or sexual function, those type elective procedures and those who promote them and market them should be held to the highest standards of telling us what the risks are, what the downside is, what are the implications of using these drugs and devices. That's a starting point. Those elective procedures could encompass vaccines or other drugs and devices. We frankly don't protect consumers and patients enough when it comes to these elective devices and procedures. The issues of artificial uh, intelligence and how they will change medicine needs to be better understood. Genetic editing and therapy and engineering is also something that needs to be uh, better understood and addressed by the states. For example, uh, if you have a family or a friend who's suffering from sickle cell anemia, if their genetic treatment can could be undertaken to solve that disease for that individual, that's a therapeutic undertaking and is something to be desired and wished. But if we go into, uh, you know, changing embryos or changing sex cells, egg and sperm cells, to try to treat disease, that has implications for future generations, and that has to be undertaken with a great degree of care. So artificial intelligence, genetic therapy, all of these are the future bioethical issues that we um, need to carefully consider um, as citizens and, and uh, at, at, at the state and local levels. Do you foresee a day when, for instance, a fetal heartbeat law would be passed by Congress and signed by a president? Not in the near future, and it would be challenged in court if it happened. It might happen, depending on who's elected in 2024, but it would require a change in the Senate and the composition of the U.S. Senate, a change in the presidency. But the good news is that a number of states have passed such laws. It's not widely reported, but since the Dobbs decision, there have been 23 states that have passed early gestational limits and or enforced them. But 23 states have passed them. And by early gestation, I mean at at 12 weeks or or sooner, earlier. And that's good news, good momentum. But I think job one after the Dobbs decision is growing those 23 states to 38 states because 38 states would not only indicate substantial public support for life, but it would also, under our Constitution, enable those 38 states to pass a constitutional amendment to protect life and to coerce the remaining 12 or 13 pro-abortion states to protect life as well. So job one is growing those 23 pro-life states to 38 states, but I think it will be a generational strategy. 
Clark Forsyth is senior counsel at Americans United for Life. He's co-author of the new book, Pushing Roe v. Wade Over the Brink. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Clark, thank you. Thanks, Todd. Always good to be with you. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss Christian Courage with Pastor Larry Peters. We'll continue our series on the scientific vocation, talking with Dr. Jesse Yao about geoengineering and its media coverage of religion with journalist Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministry sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. This is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio, with a message for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We pledge to have Issues Etc. podcasts posted daily, no later than 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. This will allow you to download and listen to the latest Issues Etc. podcast weekdays during your evening commute. Again, if you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zone, download Issues Etc. before you leave work and listen during your drive home. The blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin all sin. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. 
The Substitute Organist Service has been a great blessing for our worship life here at Christ the King Lutheran in Riverview, Florida. Pastor Kevin Yoakum on the Substitute Organist Service. Now our organ plays rich liturgical music every single Sunday, and it's very affordable. You pick the hymns, you pick the liturgies. It's very simple. Just know when to push play. You can find out more about the Substitute Organist Service at churchmusicsolutions.com, churchmusicsolutions.com. Do you dread going to work out? Performance Fitness in Edwardsville offers a fun, supportive, tight-knit community and environment. Visit them on the web at performancefitness618.com or call 618-692-5063. Performance Fitness is the facility in the St. Louis Metro East where the focus is on member results, not membership numbers. 618-692-5063 or performancefitness618.com. Performance Fitness of Edwardsville. 